Chapter Seven of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven. The seldom enlivened parishioners of the little parish of St. Mary's, Swarland, were excited one warm Sunday in May by the sight of a new face in the Marion Dand pew in church. The newcomer was not much to look at, they settled at once. She was too tall and thin and pale. But she was well and quietly dressed, her clothes looked good. She seemed to know how to behave herself, knelt and rose and sat in the proper places, stared at nobody, and altogether looked most devout and attentive. She would be a very good companion for the untidy heiress, the ugly, overgrown Miss Dand of Swarland. Amy was thinking of many things, and her eye, though it roved quietly and imperceptibly, took in and considered one by one the fellow occupants of her pew, which was of the old-fashioned square donkey-box shape. The only person she could not see well was her old pupil, Dulce Dand, who sat next to her with four pennies precariously poised on the seat beside her, ready for the offertory. Opposite her was the master of the house, in his Sunday suit, plenteously fulfilling the duties of a man, a father, and a church-warden. He chanted, he made the responses, he knelt, and yet, thought Amy, he doesn't believe in a single thing. The very pretty young woman, richly but not well-dressed, who knelt at his side, was his wife. Amy had seen him married to her five years ago in Kensington Church. She was Lady Medrow's daughter. Lady Medrow herself, painted, dyed, and feverishly clothed, sat at her daughter's right hand. Mrs. Bowman, the commanding, simply-robed old woman who took up the whole of the north side of the pew, was Jeremy Dan's mother, who lived with them. Amy Stevens, as she now called herself, had only been in the house three days, but she was in the habit of using her eyes. In the juxtaposition of so many mothers, she foresaw mischief, broils, a lively household, and apprehended the host's subtle pride in the fact of his being able to hold so many conflicting elements in leash. After leaving Mrs. Rivens, Amy had drifted for nearly four years. Her behaviour had been exemplary, her behaviour always was exemplary, but all the same she would have been unable to procure herself a character. She had no credentials. Her status was therefore that of an adventuress. As a matter of fact, those four varied years contained no single episode as romantic or dangerous as her three months' sojourn under the roof of Sir Mervyn Diamond. Amy had not enjoyed that or profited by it in any way. It simply came in the day's work. She was too old a stager to value questionable positions for their own sake. She wasn't a novelist or an actress. She could make no use of the damning experience. But it was over, thank goodness, and she was unharmed. She worked away quietly, taking anything that came in her way. Without the usual moral passport, she could not hope for positions of trust. The hapless, the philanthropic, marked Amy's services for their own. She looked after a boys' club in the East End for a while. Then she dabbled in something less pleasant, which opened her already wide-awake eyes to a further extent. Then a manager's eye lighted on her. He thought she had something in her, and was minded to bring it out. He engaged her to play a small part during the run of a piece. Amy, as before, found the life of the stage very quiet, dull, and safe. 
it was easy for a girl to keep herself respectable in a profession where you were diurnally toned down tamed and exhausted by rehearsals and hard work where it was everybody's business to look after your morals and inaugurate clubs for you while you were propped up by extraneous aid in the shape of anxious countesses on committees expecting you to fall the moment their eye was off you amy was too colourless too evenly balanced to make a good actress her heart was not in her work the manager said she had not enough temperament in pursuance of her policy of refusing no form of work she dropped into the post of dresser to the leading lady who had the quality amy lacked in a superlative degree soon as the result of some caprice of the very temperamental leading lady amy was at sea again smiling and good-tempered believing in her workaday star as ever a certain philanthropic association of blunderers known as the betterment society discovered and utilized her undeniable talent for platform work lecturing in their hall one evening on a subject she felt strongly about but had not deeply studied she distinguished among the faces upturned to her and hanging on her words the unforgettable rather curious one of dulce dand now a grown-up young lady they met when the lecture was over amy was just then possessed by a weird wild fancy for a home she was tired of one room at eight shilling a week and her meals taken in a shop with a sanded floor she brought her compelling magnetism to bear on her old pupil with the result that dulce decided that she could not live without amy and persuaded her amenable father to engage miss stevens as his daughter's permanent companion and here she was sitting in the dand family pew a lost sheep folded safely in the byre of one of our oldest county families her conscience did not prick her in any way there was no deception jeremy dand had let her go in paris for certain reasons the reasons still applied of course but he had decided to pass them over he had written her a nice letter to ratify the new engagement and offered her a good salary his daughter was headstrong and spoilt and must be indulged probably she did not get on with her stepmother and this was the sop he had thrown her the dulce she remembered took a good deal of pacifying and it was always worth while to keep her in good humour amy knew mr dan's weakness perhaps he had been too lazy to tell lady medrow's daughter the part that dulce's new companion had played in her own history perhaps he did not realise it Perhaps Lady Medra herself did not identify Amy Stevens with Miss Stevens, Sir Mervyn's secretary. Perhaps Mr. Johnson had confided his mariage manqué to Mrs. Riven only in confidence when she met him at her friend Lady Medrow's. Perhaps Lady Medrow had not always lived with her son-in-law. It was always, perhaps, Amy knew nothing. As she sat there she fancied herself sitting on a hundred minds waiting for the match of an indiscreet confidence to blow them up no one watching the quiet pale inward-eyed girl could have had an inkling of her secret tremors nor would they have realized from the direction of her glance that her whole attention was bestowed on the head of the family who probably held the keys to her enigmas amy had known him so far only as that curious anomaly the englishman abroad in his present role of solid country gentleman he puzzled her 
as she sat staring at him and took him in, or flattered herself that she did so. Omniscience was her foible. The obvious pattern of country virtues and respectabilities, she listened to his sonorous voice, murmuring the responses, and asking his God to help him to keep certain laws, and could not help thinking of the titles of some of the books in the locked cases labelled G in the library that she had vaguely envisaged the day before. Had her place been beside him, she would have observed that he read off a Latin prayer-book, and she would have been still more puzzled. Mr. Dand disappeared, reappeared in another place, and in a surplice, and proceeded to read one of the lessons impressively. But for the rest it was a long, tedious service, and a strangely unilluminating sermon that good Mr. Judd, the vicar of Swarland, gave them on this Sunday, the first of Amy's stay. Dulce's propped-up pennies fell, and were retrieved amid the audible reprehension of the young lady's paternal grandmother. Mrs. Bowman, being the relict of two famous clerics, always treated the inside of a church as if it was her own drawing-room. Then all was over. The solid mead of silver from the hands of the elders clanked in the dish. The harmonium voluntary bowed them out. The carriage was drawn up at the lynch-gate for the two elder ladies and for Mrs. Dand, who, although esteeming herself a good walker, did not think it would look well in the eyes of the villagers for their lady to walk to and from divine service. Amy, nothing witting, followed the party out of church and saw with startled eyes the two ladies who had preceded her down the flagged walk being stowed carefully into the carriage by her old fellow-secretary, Alec Johnson. Mr. Dand greeted him cordially. The motor had been sent in to Oldfort on purpose to bring him back. Thus intimate was he in the house where the woman he seemed to have been tracking down had newly come to live, the villain of her peace. Amy laughed at herself, while disgusted with the turn matters seemed to have taken. It was not easy to connect the word of melodrama and the frail little figure of her old fellow-secretary, with the yellow face, the prevailing hectic spot on the high Scotch cheekbones, the reddish eyelids, and the honey-coloured hair. Even the curious amalgam of Scotch and Cockney accent with which he spoke seemed to Amy domestic and reassuring. He acknowledged Mr. Dan's curt introduction to his daughter's new companion in a manner that left it doubtful whether or no he had ever shaken hands with Miss Stevens before. There was no art in that, however. It was symptomatic of the vagueness towards things in general, and especially towards the things that reputedly did not matter, which Alec Johnson had always affected. Books were more vital to him than persons. At least it was his pose to assume this not a dangerous man, not a gentleman. Amy could hardly accept him as a gentleman in view of that fatuous admission with regard to herself repeated by Mrs. Riven. Possibly, however, Mrs. Riven, a violent and excessive person, had misrepresented him. With the effet smart woman, any sort of juggling with words is possible. Amy had heartily determined never to speak to him again at the time, but when she made that stagey vow she had not contemplated the possibility of their running up against each other again so soon. She judged, too, from the cordiality of Mr. Dan's greeting, that Mr. Johnson and she might chance to be thrown a good deal together. 
she wisely decided to begin as she would have to go on be fairly civil to the man and hope for the best she considered there would be no harm in asking a few leading questions of dulce on their short walk home through the shrubberies tell me what that funny little mr johnson does here she asked bluntly alec johnson he is father's greatest chum you wonder how a clever man like my father cares to make a friend of him so do i great men like a doormat johnson simply worships father and stands all his tempers and father is mean enough to accept the adoration of the meanest it's one of the cheap poor traits in his character but what does he do here what is his profession he makes his living by secretarying for father he has rooms in oldfort and works all day at the office under father's eye father trusts him we are treated to him pretty often here they send the motor in for him on sundays and we have the pleasure of his company all day grandmother medrow discovered him she had met him more shame for her she's been a wicked old woman at sir mervyn diamond's you know her great friend alec was his secretary sir mervyn had too the old wretch the other was a girl she disappeared utterly after his death i was told not by mr johnson he never will talk to me about her i feel sure though i should have liked to have known her she must have a story to tell oh and let me add lest you tread on his corns somehow that johnson is an author dad and he are writing a book together they have invented a nom de plume what said amy breathlessly jerry johnson or dandy john you dear thing how you are going to keep me amused but look here assay johnson tell me what you think of our brave sunday show do you not admire our animated clothes horse our domestic mannequin do you mean your stepmother yes i saw you looking at her through the service sat instead of kneeling never stood at all yet she's quite strong she's got that little air fatale that goes with perfect health why do you call her a mannequin because she buys endless clothes and hangs as many of them as she can on her on sundays they never seem to belong to her any more than they do to the girls that try them on for her in the shops no notion of dressing now i frankly haven't the clothes instinct i'm ugly but she is pretty and thinks she's a regular dab at dressing is it your companion's duty to listen to you abusing your stepmother just tell me please yes for it is my safety valve if i mayn't let off steam to you i shall go mad so long as i am civil to her i am am i not yes you are quite ladylike so she thinks i like her and that father adores her and isn't clever enough to see that he only tolerates her you see we have both made up our minds to feed her vanity by which she lives and procure ourselves a quiet life by that means it's the only way and so you will find you must really let me unburden my mind to you when i feel like it and not shut me up you know dear that's the reason i got you here i knew i could talk to you you have no tiresome prejudices you are amoral like me nothing shocks me i let people rave they don't rave here alas one never hears a nice naked truth from one year's end to another but you why you are up to everything 
and you can give a perfectly gorgeous lecture. I shall never forget that one I heard, and that brought us together again. For one thing, I could see that you took such a perfectly reasonable view of the relations of the sexes. Oh, the relations between the sexes, said Amy contemptuously. That's just the part that bores me. People do seem to me to attach far too much importance to it all. Animals don't, except for a short while in spring. Why can't we be sensible like them, and not base all our actions and ambitions and well-being on the fact of our mating, and whether we have mated right or not? Don't you suppose the man Nightingale makes the best of it, and if she isn't quite the right little brown bird he would have liked to sing to, just shrugs his shoulders and says, Sufficient for the season is the mate thereof. But you do think every woman ought to marry, don't you? To mate, said Amy, correcting her, and perhaps marry as well. I know what you mean, to mate for love and marry for companionship and so on. Something like that, replied Amy, but not to complicate the whole machinery of existence with the consequences of one little manifestation of energy, don't you know? That's your lecture, its substance, said Dulce eagerly. I can give it you nearly word for word. See how I adore you. You said that you thought love, like the rest of the important passions, should have its hour, its day, its year even, but should not be allowed to trespass on the space of all the others, and to lengthen itself out over the whole field of existence. You said, love is very well, but there are other dreams, other interests. What of revenge and ambition? Why should the one emotion, you said, set the tune eternally? To be practical, why shouldn't an alliance of reason follow one of love? Why, because at one time or another we happen to have submitted to a nearly inevitable law of our being, must the rest of our lives be dragged, protesting, through the miry channels of love? Why should children, the buds and flowers of the crescendo, be exposed to the ugly view of the diminuendo, just because their absurd, hide-bound parents insist on remaining together after the impulse that produced them is spent. For the good of the children, it is said, ill-judged martyrization, pathological sights are not healthy to grow up among. Love must be, love must die, but bury it deep and let there be no mourners, no flowers. That's nearly what you said. I have changed my views a little since I had the cheek to give that lecture, Amy replied gravely. The crude exposition of her theories on the lips of the morbidly eager, hopelessly plain young girl disgusted her. She knew not why. But she spoke up again presently. She would be true to her convictions. In the main, she said, I do still think the demands made on that poor, hard-working passion by the whole world are somewhat exorbitant. Why should any of us dare to look for more than one nightingale season, say, or perhaps two, that is, if we are specially cut out for that kind of thing? And for some of us it is lucky if we get a season at all. For some disappointed women no bird ever sings, and those women would be the most exigent if they did get him, and would shake the branch, nay, the whole tree, down to move him to a fuller tune. End of chapter 7 Read by Lisa Reichert